If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. You'll find verse 36 on page 924 if you're using a pew Bible. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Every few weeks, an article pops up on the internet telling us just how lonely we are. According to recent studies, 46% of Americans always or sometimes feel alone. 54% say they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. And it's not just a, an American problem. I could go through examples from lots of different countries, studies from lots of different nations, but this is particularly interesting in Japan, over 500,000 people under the age of 40 haven't left home or interacted with anyone for at least six months. Now, loneliness is disappointing whatever country you're in, but it's also dangerous. The lonely are much more likely to be depressed, to be anxious, even to be schizophrenic. The lonely are 26% more likely to die early. Now, obviously, not everyone is, is that lonely, but many of us live on the brink of loneliness, a loneliness that, if we're going to be honest, gnaws away at our joy. Generational expert Neil Howe, he's the one who at least says he coined the term the millennial generation. Well. He says that loneliness is the greatest fear of millennials. So often when we think of, of loneliness, we think of, of the elderly who have friends who have, who have died, uh, maybe spouses who have died. But Howe says that loneliness is the greatest fear of millennials. Here's an example that he provided. He said 42% of millennial women are more afraid of loneliness than a cancer diagnosis. So is it any wonder that millennials are the ones who have popularized FOMO, fear of missing out? The millennials finished that sentence. Now, this is why friendship matters, right? And it's why the Bible addresses it, right? From heartwarming accounts of friendship that we see in places like uh, Jonathan and his relationship with David to Proverbs like 18, 24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The Bible is not silent on the topic of friendship. 
And even in our passage, friendship is under the surface. We see it behind the conflict experienced by Paul and Barnabas. Now, just to be clear, right at the outset, I want to be clear about this. All of Acts, including our passage, is about the spread of the gospel. That's what all of Acts is about, and even our passage is fundamentally about the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But interestingly, it appears that at least in this bit of Acts, friendship is a lens through which we get to see the spread of the gospel. And so that's why I want to to double down on this topic of friendship, even as I say to expose this short paragraph in this amazing ancient book of Acts. So I've got three points, of course. We have the value of friendships. The value of friendships is point number one. Second, the failure of friendships. The failure of friendships, point number two. And point number three, the friendship of friendships. The friendship of friendships. Right. First, the value of friendships. Look again at verse 36. Luke draws our attention to the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul and Barnabas, by this point in history, have known one another for at least a decade. So think about friendships that you may have with other people. Well, they've known one another for at least 10 years. They just returned together from an important theological meeting in Jerusalem. They probably waited out the cold winter months in Antioch. Spring has now arrived, and Paul is ready to go and to visit these churches that he planted with his friend Barnabas. And so let's think for a moment about this this friendship that God gave Paul and Barnabas. It has three characteristics. These characteristics make for a good friendship. First, encouragement. Now, remember who Barnabas is. Barnabas is Jewish. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Barnabas uh, lived in Jerusalem. He was there during Pentecost. He heard the apostolic preaching of the word from apostles like Peter and John. God saved him. Barnabas sold Uh, some of his land and gave it generously to the church in Jerusalem. His name is actually Joseph, but the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, right? So great name for your son, Barnabas, Acts 4.36. Now in Acts chapter 9, we see how God turns Saul from a persecutor of the church to a a preacher of the church. But when Saul, who is also called Paul, came to Jerusalem, because he had this long track record of killing Christians, the apostles didn't trust him. It was Barnabas who convinced the apostles in Jerusalem to accept Paul as a brother, Acts 9.27. What an encouragement he must have been to Paul. In Acts chapter 11, it is Barnabas who's leading the church in Antioch. And when he needs help, he doesn't call upon Peter. He doesn't call upon James or John. When he needs help, he goes all the way to Tarsus. And he finds Paul. 
and he convinces Paul to come to Antioch, Acts 11:26. And so I would say just from a, a brief examination of Barnabas's life, he stayed true to his name. He encouraged Paul by defending him and by trusting him and by inviting him into leadership in the church at Antioch. And it's safe to say, I don't have specific examples of this, but it's safe to say that, that Paul encouraged Barnabas too. Encouragement is one mark of their friendship. And second, there's companionship. Paul and Barnabas served side by side. In fact, for over a year in Antioch, they were side by side teaching and discipling at the church in Antioch. But they didn't stay in Antioch. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 2, just a few pages to the left. If that, Acts chapter 13, verse 2, while they, the church in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said presumably through the congregation, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the Spirit brought Saul and Barnabas together, Paul and Barnabas together in a unique way to do the work of bringing the gospel to Asia Minor. Companionship. They were together. And they didn't just teach together, and they didn't just travel together. They suffered together. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 50. During their missionary travels, we read, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. Their work was to leave Antioch and bring the gospel to other parts of the world. And when they did, they were companions. They shared life together. They suffered together. There's something unusually uh, invigorating about suffering with another person. It brings you together. You share a trial. There's few things that are going to draw you closer to one another than sharing and enduring a trial together. This is what Paul and Barnabas, these companions, experienced. It marks a friendship, encouragement, companionship, and number three, correction. In Galatians, Paul describes how several Jewish leaders, including Peter, refused fellowship with Gentile believers who had not been circumcised. Right, we've been talking about that in Acts 15 for a, a couple of weeks right now. This event that Paul is describing in Galatians happened prior to the events of Acts 15. And one of the believers who withdrew fellowship from these uncircumcised Gentile believers was Barnabas. It wasn't just Peter who needed correction. Galatians 2.13 says, even Barnabas was led astray. But if you remember from the teaching in Acts chapter 15, when false teachers come to Antioch to spread this, don't fellowship with Gentile Christians who refuse to be circumcised message, Paul and Barnabas were on the same page, arguing with these teachers and then going together to Jerusalem to make the case for full and complete fellowship with Gentiles. What happened to Barnabas? Well, he'd been corrected by Paul. Paul corrected him. Barnabas changed his mind. 
Barnabas grew spiritually because of the influence of Paul in his life. Three characteristics of a friend, encouragement, companionship, and correction. These are the ingredients of a good friendship. Then and even now, take away encouragement and there's no trust. Take away encouragement and there's no trust. Everyone wants encouragement. Few people give it naturally. It's much easier to think about yourself than about others, but a friend does the reverse. A friend builds trust by being thoughtful towards you, quick to thank God for you, eager to praise you and speak well of you. Encourage and you will build trust. Take away companionship and there's no love. Friends find a way to spend time together, getting to know one another. They may serve together. They may stay in touch by phone. They may text. They may play together. They make their lives overlap. Take away correction, and there's no truth. True friendship isn't fake. It's, it's real. Right? You speak the truth in love. You speak the truth in love. A friend is willing to say, you were harsh. You appear to be lazy. You're not thinking biblically about this. Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If there is something about your relationships with other people that keeps you from ever correcting, you're drinking in more of the culture than you are the Bible. It can be done horribly, can be done awfully, but if it's never done, I'm not sure a real friendship exists. Now, what does this have to do with you? I would say you should admit that you need friends. I think that's a, a wise thing to do, just to admit that you need friends. That's the first takeaway, right? You need encouragement. You need companionship. You need correction. We all do. None of us are islands. We're humans made in the image of God. Uh, we're made in the image of a God who is himself relational, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another, with one another, for all time, outside of time, before there was time, after there was time. And the relationalness of God is relationship, a relationalness that, that we're to have, being made in God's image. We are relational beings. We need friendship. So admit you need friends. Right? And I would say agree that you need Christian friends. Right? Christian friendship is uniquely important. Right? There is no denying that you can have sweet, genuine friendships with people who don't believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross in the place of everyone who would turn and trust in him. I believe you can have genuine and sweet friendships with people who don't profess that, who aren't Christians, but there is a kind of encouragement that only a Christian can give. Right? And if you are, and I don't know who's in here, Right, but in your, if you're on the cusp, for example, of dating a person right, who's not a believer, not a Christian, and you're thinking, well, I can't find a verse in the Bible exactly. I mean, don't be yoked to unbelievers, but I'm not sure if that applies to this. And, you know, I really love this person. 
just, just bear in mind. It's a consigning yourself to a life with another person who can't encourage you in Christ. An unbeliever cannot encourage you in Christ. And that's the type of encouragement that, that we need, the, the daily reminders that Jesus is awesome, the daily reminders to drink deeply from the well of his word, the daily reminder that, that you know, we're insufficient, but Christ is enough. That's the kind of, of encouragement we get from believers, and, and we should want that kind of friendship, gospel-centered friendship. So agree you need Christian friends. And then, if you will, I know it's early into the sermon, but maybe the, the hardest thing I'm going to say, I think I'll swing back to it later, be a friend. Be a friend. It's so simple, but I think so difficult. Many of you fear rejection. right? You don't offer encouragement because you aren't sure anybody cares. Right? You don't offer companionship because you don't think anybody wants to be with you. You don't offer correction lest you offend now, I may not be describing all of you. I recognize that. In fact, there is, I know someone who, you know, is unusually good with friends, and I was once so intrigued that I asked him about it, and he said, well, I just assume that everybody wants to spend time with me. <laughs> like, praise God for that attitude, you know? I, mean, I guess on the spectrum, it could be sort of proud, but I don't know him to be a proud man. I just think he thinks life is short. I'm just going to assume you want to spend time with me. And if you don't, kind of your loss. <laughs> so I, I may not be describing all of you, but I, think, I know I'm describing some of you. And so, you know, what you typically do is you retreat to a corner. I'm speaking metaphorically. And some of you may actually retreat to a corner. I don't know. I'll look after the service. <laughs> you retreat to a corner. And you're hoping, maybe even praying, that someone will be a friend to you. Well, in the meantime, I would just say, well, go ahead and be a friend. Be an encouragement, be a companion, be willing to correct. Now, I'm feeling bad here because I did not warn Logan. Logan Divine, can you raise your hand? So sorry. Yes, calling you out. It's going to happen, I think, a couple times this morning. You're about to be baptized. So thankful for that. And so, because I want you to remember today, I'm going to speak directly to you. We are excited to baptize you today. And as you profess your faith in the Lord, I know it's a little awkward, probably won't happen again. Uh, know that God is giving you a family. And this family is intended by God to be effectively your friends. Not your only friends for sure, but friends indeed. To encourage you, to be with you, and to correct you when necessary. And if we baptize you, we're asking you to do the same for us. So it's a pretty special day. Right, I'll come back to you later. All right, that's the value of friendships. Here's the second point. The failure of friendships. The failure of friendships. Now look again at verse 36. Right, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement 
so that they separated from each other. Now, all right, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement that led them to separate from one another. That's what the text says. It appears that their friendship, which I just described, their valuable friendship, it appears that that friendship was too weak to bear the weight of the conflict. Their friendship was too weak to bear the weight of the conflict. Now, here's what we know. Barnabas and John Mark. John Mark is sometimes called John. Sometimes he's called Mark. Sometimes he's called John Mark. Barnabas and John Mark are cousins. Uh, Barnabas is probably much older than Mark. And we know they're cousins from Colossians 4.10. All right? Now, Mark's mother is Mary, and uh, not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but another Mary. And she's, she's a woman who owns a very large home in Jerusalem. She's probably a wealthy woman. And it's actually in her home that after God releases or frees Peter from jail, uh, Peter runs to Mary's home because in her home, Christians gather. So that must have been a wonderful place in Jerusalem Mary's home, Mark's mother. That's Acts 12, 12. Well, Paul and Barnabas, one day, they bring Mark from Jerusalem, and they bring him to Antioch, where, where Mark, again, younger, I think, than Barnabas and Paul, Mark agrees to be their, their traveling companion, their ministry assistant, Acts 13, verse 5. But here's the deal. The moment they reach Asia Minor, Pamphylia, in fact, uh, Mark decides that he's going to leave. Now, Luke in Acts 13 gives us no details except to say, and now I'm quoting Luke, John left them to return to Jerusalem. And that's Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, many have speculated why Mark left. The text doesn't say. Well, maybe, you know, difficult to travel in Asia Minor. You know, he didn't bring his REI gear, so he couldn't go on. That's one idea. Another is that he's afraid of dying. You know, and he knew that Christians are being persecuted, so no thank you, I'm going. One idea. Another suggestion is that he just missed his mom. Totally legitimate, young man, comfortable bed in Jerusalem, difficult journey, I'm going to go home, I miss mom. Uh, A number of commentators actually suggest that Mark got a little indignant that Paul ended up being the, the, the leader of the missionary party. And it's very interesting as you go through the Acts narrative, Early on, you'll read Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Uh, But as Paul proves himself to be the superior teacher, preacher, leader, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. And so some speculate that Mark, the younger cousin to Barnabas, got a little indignant and decided, well, I've had it. If if Paul's going to take over, I'm going to leave town. All right, maybe. All we know for sure is that Mark left. Now, because Mark left once, Acts 13, 13, uh, Paul thinks that he might leave again. And Paul thinks that Mark is therefore unreliable. And Paul doesn't want to take the risk of bringing an unreliable brother on what will be a strenuous journey. Even strengthening the churches is going to include entering hostile territory. It's going to be hard. And he doesn't want to take the risk of bringing alongside him an unreliable, you know, younger brother. It's an investment, you know. 
now, for some reason, Barnabas disagrees. Maybe Barnabas concluded that, in fact, he wasn't unreliable. Maybe Barnabas said, well, yeah, maybe, but it's worth the risk. Um, so this is a little strong, but maybe it's sort of like Barnabas is sacrificing truth at the altar of love. Let's love him. He's going to be sad if we don't bring him along. You know, let's love him. So the truth is he could leave us in the lurch, but hey, so maybe Barnabas is sacrificing truth at the altar of love. Maybe Paul is sacrificing love at the altar of truth. You know, we can't risk it. You know, we can't risk it. I don't see enough change in him. I don't know. Now, I don't know who's right in this dispute. Uh, the text really isn't clear. For what it's worth, I tend to side with Paul, who goes on to write much of the New Testament. Having said that, Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark with the eyewitness of Peter, so that's pretty good. Um, regardless of whose argument is better, I hope it's clear that this wasn't a gospel issue that they were disagreeing about, whether or not to bring Mark or not to bring Mark. It was a wisdom issue. And so, and so they should have worked it out, is what I'm saying. They should have worked it out. And instead, they have a, a sharp disagreement. Now, that, 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 that word sharp disagreement in the Greek is paroxysmus, and I tell it to you because there's an English word, uh, paroxysm, which refers to a sudden attack or a violent expression of some emotion. That's what happened between Paul and Barnabas. It was a sharp, it was a contested issue, a sharp disagreement. And so instead of working it out and staying together, what the text is saying is that Paul and Barnabas had it out and they separated. And so their friendship failed. Now, if that seems strong to you, their friendship failed, fine. Their, their friendship fractured. It just wasn't strong enough to bear the brunt of this disagreement. And the observation that we make is that friendships sometimes fail. It's not a pleasant thought, but it's true. Now, what are we to make of this today? The fact that their sharp disagreement led to a failed, or at least a fractured, friendship. What are we to make of this? I want to say three things. All right, first, this, the fact that this is in the Bible should help you trust the Bible. So there's any, if there's anyone who's sort of teetering on, is the Bible reliable? They sure spend a lot of time studying it in church. I'm just not sure. I think it's passages like this that increase sort of our, humanly speaking, increase our ability to trust in, to rely on the Bible. Because it is stunning that Luke records this event. He didn't have to, right? Luke could have just said, you know, they came back from Jerusalem, they spent some time in Antioch, and, you know, um, Barnabas took Mark and they went to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and they went to Syria. He could have just said that. We would have been none the wiser. He could have just brushed this conflict under the rug, but he doesn't at all. Here you've got these two, you know, uh, heroes of the faith in Acts. If you've been paying attention, you know, from Acts, what, 9 through now, Paul and Barnabas are living large in our eyes, and here they're shown to be squabbling. So it's, it's not a pretty story. 
but, it, but it's an honest story. And it points to the reliability of the Bible. And it points to the fact that, that, that sometimes things don't work out in the short term. I would say the Bible is more honest than any cultural commentary that you're going to get yesterday or today outside of Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. Walt Whitman is the American writer and poet, and in 1865, he wrote a poem. He wrote this poem literally while American soldiers in the North and the South were killing one another on the battlefields of our country. And he writes these lines. So this is, this is Walt Whitman. He says, this is 1865, be not disheartened. Affection shall solve the problem of freedom yet. Those who love each other shall become invincible. Like, with all due respect, you've got to be kidding me. And, like, I, you didn't know how I found out this? I'm not, it's not like I'm so well-read. I'm not just, like, at home reading Walt Whitman. I got an email with an advertisement for a bracelet with these words inscribed on it. Seriously. Uh, 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 not that. It's, uh, it's those who love each other shall become invincible. And I thought, well, where in the world did this come from? And then, you know, Google was my friend. <laughs> I mean, I, I get being optimistic. But there comes a point where that's just a ridiculous statement. Uh, John Lennon, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. All you need is love. Now, maybe with a proper de definition of love, that makes sense. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is it's so easy to, to fall into these little cliches about life that don't hold true to reality. The reality is that sometimes your love fails. Love doesn't fail. Christ's love doesn't fail. Your love, not perfect, not invincible. And so the Bible doesn't try to brush aside the warts of humanity. And I think that's a really important thing to notice. And I think as you do notice, it's going to help you. It's going to buttress your faith, if you will, in the Word of God. Now, second, the reality of this sharp disagreement should cause you to lament your failed friendships. So if we had more time, I would literally give you about 10 minutes, and I'd have you pull out a piece of paper. I would say, I'd like you to start writing down the lists of people in your life that you would identify yourself as having a fractured friendship with. We don't have the time for that type of exercise. But whatever that list and however long it is, you should lament the reality of those failed or fractured friendships. So it's tempting. Here's why I say this. It's tempting to look at this passage and say, praise the Lord. Even Paul and Barnabas got in a fight and separated. Like, wow, I am off the hook. And I just don't think that's the point of this. I think this is there to cause us to say, no, it shouldn't be this way. This is bad. This is this is wrong. Yes, it happens. Yes, we live in a fallen world, but I'm not going to be glad about it, and I'm not going to use it as an excuse to tolerate the failed or fractured friendships in my life. You should lament friendships that you had or friendships that you have right now that fail to live up to any biblical standard of friendship. And when I say lament, I don't just mean be sad or kind of, woe is me, my friendship is lame. I'm talking about being able to say, wow, like I'm the problem. Maybe not 100% of the problem, but when I say lament, I say like being able to say, I'm the problem. Like, I, here's what I can say. 
Like, if Paul was part of the problem, like, friend, you're part of the problem. If Barnabas was part of the problem, you're part of the problem. You know, there are times when I think I'm right. Ask my wife. And in and, and all honesty, like, I really think I'm right. And you don't just have to ask, any, ask anyone who knows, ask people who work with me that I'm not going to look at right now. There are just times that I think I'm right. And guess what? Sometimes I'm not. And it actually surprises me. Like, I really thought I was right. Sometimes I do marital counseling. And you get moments where one person says, you know, the sky is blue. The other person says, the sky is green. Man, I don't know what to do about that. How do I help? What helps is when someone, and I'm not talking about gospel issues here, right? I'm not talking about the gospel, but it helps to be able to say, I could be wrong. So when I say lament your failed friendships, to begin by saying, I could be wrong, is a powerful and humble and, dare I say, Christian thing to say, I could be wrong. That little word will help your marriage, it'll help your work environment, and it'll help your friendships. And then one other thing to take away from this sharp disagreement, uh, a little bit of what I said before, fight for your friendships. Fight for your friendships. It is not too late to be a better friend. Right, if I, if I started counting off in this room and, and I asked you, hey, what, what are some of the challenges you're facing? Right, I know there would be a lot of different answers, but I know a lot of you would say, you know, one of my biggest challenges, one of the things that's really hurting the most right now is my lack of friendships or the fact that the friendships I have are not what they ought to be. And so my exhortation to you, seeing the sharp disagreement that led to a separation that ought not have been there, is to say to you, fight for your friendships. It's not too late to pursue reconciliation, to be a better friend. It's not too late to be the friend you want to have. There's a great little book written by Joel Beakey and Michael Haken. It's called How Should We Develop Biblical Friendship? It's tiny. It's in the bookstall. Now, by the way, a little aside, the book last week that I mentioned on uh, spiritual uh, gifts, I like the whole book, just to be clear. So for those of you who did not buy the book last week, because I only commented on the first half, right, it's still available. It's a good book on spiritual gifts. I commend it highly, right? This is a different book. How should we develop biblical friendships? Listen to what they say. We often sin against each other. Strange as it may seem, the worst eruptions of our remaining corruption are often against those closest and dearest to us. In other words, the people that you're often the worst to are the people that you're the closest to. Friendship between sinners can be preserved only by the hard work of reconciliation. Be quick to make peace and be willing to admit your wrongdoings. Repent of them and make restitution. In the end, your relationship can become stronger than ever when both parties are willing to walk in humility and grace. Right? It's not obvious that that happened at this moment in the lives 
of Barnabas and Paul. These are wise words for all of us. Logan, as you come to be baptized, you come as a sinner, like Paul and like Barnabas. You will sin against us, and we will sin against you. That's a given. Remember, your hope is not in us. Your hope is in Christ. And that leads us to our third and final point, the friendship of friendships. Right, look at verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, allow me to point out the obvious, all right? By separating, Paul and Barnabas established two missionary teams. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul took Silas and went to uh, strengthen the churches in the region of Syria and Cilicia. Barnabas and Paul had a friendship falling out, but their ministry multiplied as a result. Separation, bad. Ministry, multiplication, good. But it's like the beginning of Acts, where the church is being persecuted, and then the gospel spreads because of the persecution. Persecution, bad. Spread of the gospel, good. So same thing here, right? Uh, this division between Paul and Barnabas, it, it's a bad thing, but God used it to, to spread the gospel and, and grow his church, and we call that providence. And I would say over the years, I have sadly seen more, ha, seen more than one kind of Paul and Barnabas moment where two believers, they love Jesus, but they just can't get on the same page, and they finally decide to part ways. And I don't commend this, and I don't recommend this. And we should fight against it. And I'm so thankful to say that I've even experienced times in Mount Vernon that could have been Paul and Barnabas moments. But they didn't. And the relationship became so much sweeter as a result. I don't commend it. I don't recommend it. We should fight against it. But when it happens, we can trust God has not fallen asleep at the wheel. We can believe that God will continue to do good through fallen sinners in a fallen world even as they go their separate ways. Now, as we think about friendship, I want us to keep something else in mind. We live in an age that puts friendship up on a pedestal. From television shows that lead you to believe that friendship is easy or even the most important thing in life, to media, social media accounts that lead you to believe that all of your friends who aren't really your friends have a thousand friends. It just seems like everything around us is leading us to believe that there's nothing more important in life than friendship. Friendship isn't important, is important, but for many of you, somewhere along the way, something happened. You turned a good thing, friendship, into an ultimate thing, and we call that idolatry. And here's the kicker. The moment you make an idol out of friendship, the harder it will be to ever be a friend or have a friend. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. You are so eager to be included, so hungry to be in, so fearful of missing out, 
that you no longer see people as God's image bearers. You see them as a product to be consumed. You don't love them for who they are. You love them for the feeling of friendship that they can give you. Have you ever watched the face of a celebrity giving an autograph? It's often a, a flat, not always, but often a flat, sort of plastic, disengaged look as the autograph is being given. Why is that? Well, because that celebrity knows that you don't really care about him. You care about what he can give you, a little touch of fame. And that's the danger of idolizing friendship. You stop caring about the person, and you start caring about what they can give you, a little touch of friendship. So what's the answer? It's in our passage. It's in verse 36. Notice what Paul said that he and Barnabas did. They proclaimed the word of the Lord. What is that word that they proclaimed? It is the message of Jesus. What is that message? There are lots of different related ways to summarize that message. For the sake of this sermon, let me use that sentence spoken by Jesus in John 15, verse 13, where Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. In that one sentence, Jesus summarized what he came to do. In that one sentence, we have the gospel in brief, right? Because of his love, Jesus laid down his life at Calvary in the place of everyone who would ever turn and trust in him, who would confess their sins to him, acknowledge their wretchedness before him, turn to him, trust in him, and then Jesus says, and I call you, those of you who do that, I call you my friends, John 15, 13. So Paul and Barnabas were not perfect. They failed, at least for a season, at their own friendship, but they didn't go back into a corner and pout. They grabbed another friend, and they went about the business of proclaiming the word of the Lord in Cyprus, in Asia Minor, in Syria, in Cilicia. And why? Because neither of them, to the best of my understanding of the entirety of Acts, neither of them made an idol out of friendship, at least out of human friendship. There was a more important relationship to talk about, the word of the Lord, the message of Jesus, the friend of sinners, the friendship of friendships. They loved each other, Paul and Barnabas, but they loved Christ more. And so they shared the gospel of Christ to strengthen churches and tell everyone they could about this amazing friend who is Christ. So, I'm not sure if you're lonely today. And I, 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 I hope you're not. But maybe you are and maybe you're hurt. And maybe you feel abandoned by those you love. And maybe you feel betrayed by people that you thought were your friends. And those feelings are real and they're painful. And I don't want to take them lightly. And we shouldn't take them lightly. And admittedly, the statistics tell us that we're living in a world where people feel alone and they don't know where to turn. That is obvious. And it appears to just be getting worse. And maybe that's you. But do you realize that as much as you feel hurt or abandoned or ignored by others, 
So listen, please. As much as you feel hurt or rejected or abandoned by others, you have rejected God a million times more. Do you realize that though you have been made by God to love Him and enjoy Him and find your satisfaction in Him, you have chosen time and time again to hate Him, to be bored by Him, and to find your satisfaction in people other than Him. You have again and again and again looked for friendship from people which is a good thing, but not if you neglect the one who matters more than anyone else. True friendship, real, lasting, perfect friendship is not found in a club, it's not found in a school, it's not found in a job, it's not, dare I say, it's not even found in a church. It's found on the cross where Jesus did what no other friend could do. He laid down his life for sinners like you to make them, to make them his friends. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And again, dare we say, he is the friend of friends. So Paul and Barnabas may have disappointed one another, but Jesus never disappointed them. And that's why they kept going, proclaiming, verse 36, proclaiming the word of the Lord, strengthening the churches, recognizing themselves to be the broken vehicles of God's grace they may be, but nonetheless proclaiming the grace of the Lord, recognizing that as horrible friends as they might be, there is a friend who never fails. And so though we all fail at friendship, Jesus remains a beautiful and a faithful friend of sinners. And so may we as a church be a place that is just falling over in love for one another. May we be that place. May we be a church full of people who never let one another down. May we be that place. But when we fail to live up to the standards set before us by Jesus Christ, let's remember it's not about us. It's about him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the friend of friends. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We praise you for this unusual paragraph in the Bible presenting to us the fractured friendship of Paul and of Barnabas. And we thank you for the way that in spite of or through their failure, you did such an amazing work of building up and encouraging churches and undoubtedly planting new ones. We pray that as we marvel at Logan being baptized today, we pray that, that we would recognize that there's no one better than Christ in whose name, in whose name we find hope and love and friendship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.